Oh, you were clapping for joy playing the song there. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're going to talk about something today that every single person in this place deals with. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you have dealt with it in the past. You probably are dealing with it now. And I can guarantee you, absolutely, you will be dealing with it in the future. We're going to talk about stress. In a good way, we're going to talk about it, all right? So, <clears throat> I've devised a little quiz to kind of see how familiar you are with stress. You ready? Uh, if you're ready, complete these sentences for me. I'm all stressed. Uh, you did good on that one. How about this one? I'm all shook. Yeah, you could be an Elvis fan and sing that one. You might be fooling me. I'm at the end of my... Rope. Yep. How about this one? I am just about to fall. Uh, yep. You got it. I'm ready to throw in the. Oh my goodness. You're pros at stress. You really do know what you're talking about. But look at me. Stress is not your problem. Now I promise you, stress is a symptom of your problem. Underneath the stress. And the people that you think are causing your stress. That's a myth that we live by. Other people cause me stress. Now they can, but if we let them. But listen, stress is just a symptom. Underneath the stress, behind those individuals, are the real issues in our hearts and minds that cause the stress. And that's what I want to look at with you today, using the life and habits of the Lord Jesus as our example. When I look at his life, you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's absolutely astounding at how calm, cool, collected the Lord Jesus was in spite of immense, immense pressure, tons of criticism, unfair, most of it, enormous stressors that would have stressed most people out. He had very little private time to himself. People all around him, great multitudes constantly, I think he was possibly the most misunderstood individual that's ever lived on this earth. And he was constantly misjudged. I want you to open up your Bibles. I just want to show you what a day in the life of Jesus looked like real quick. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But turn to Luke chapter 4. Now this is only four chapters into the gospel according to Luke. And so this is very quick, early in his ministry... Go ahead and turn to Luke 4. I'm going to take you to Luke 5. I know that I, your pastor and the board saying two different things, and that's quite common, but today it's intentional, okay? Because before we get to Luke 5, I want to show you what an average day of Jesus kind of looked like. If you were to go to Luke chapter 3, you don't need to go there, you'd see the baptism of Jesus. He's baptized in the River Jordan. And then immediately at chapter 4, verses 1 through 14, if you look in your Bibles, you'll see that's where he faces that great temptation by Satan, right? And passes it. If you look at chapter 4, verse 15, you'll see Jesus, is, it says that he went about teaching in all of their synagogues. You see that? So he's, he's got lessons he's preparing, he's, got, he's teaching in the synagogues on God's Word. In verses 16 through 27, if you look at that, he, is, uh, he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, guess what happens to him there? Notice it says where he had been brought up. 
And as his custom was, he goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and he started preaching. And in verses 28 through 29, if you look there, <clears throat> he's rejected. Notice verse 28. All those in the synagogue, when they heard these things that he had said, they were filled with what? Wrath. They didn't pat him on the back, stand at the back door and say, great sermon preacher. No, no, no. They were angry and they rose up, verse 29. They thrust him out of the city. It's a, it's a strong word. They threw him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. Terrible sermon, preacher. <laughs> right? Passing through their midst of them, he went on his way. Uh, chapter 4, look down at about verses 31 through 32. He goes to another city nearby, Capernaum. And he's teaching in the synagogues. And a man with an unclean spirit... Uh, manifest itself this demon and Jesus cast this demon out of it so he has an exorcism there you see that look at verses 38 and 39 it says uh, he goes from the synagogue and entered into Simon that's Peter's house but Simon's wife's mother so who would she have been Simon's mother-in-law it was his wife's mother so Simon was married right Peter was probably not the first pope then if the celibacy of the priesthood is something that should be just saying. Read your Bible. It's a bi Bible's a book of words. If he was, the first pope was married and he had a mother-in-law. <laughs> Maybe that's why I couldn't qualify for pope. I don't know, but it might be the second reason. But anyway, she's sick. Has a high fever. And they come to Jesus. You got to help her. He stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it what? So he healed Peter's mother-in-law. So he does that right after a demon possession episode with a man where he casts out a demon. Right after getting almost thrown off a cliff. Right after teaching in the synagogues. Look at verses 40. Look at verse 40. And the sun was setting. So this has been a long, long. And on all those who had any that were sick with various diseases. Do you see all this? All those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him. It's almost a sun setting. He laid his hands on how many of them? <clears throat> Every one of them. And what did he do? He, he healed them. And demons also came out of many crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuking them did not allow them to speak. For they knew that he was the Christ. What a day. What a busy day. What a stressful day. Now I want you to look at verses 42. Look at it. When it was a day, he departed. He went into a, desert, a deserted place and the crowd sought him and they came to him. Now I wonder why he went away to a desert place, right? <laughs> But the crowd followed him. You see that? They tried to keep him from leaving them. And Jesus says, but I have other cities I've got to go preach to. This is why God sent me. This is the purpose for which I'm sent. Now, we're coming to the text that's on the screen. That's what he's been through. And he's going to go through a lot more. I just want you to notice that in chapter 5, <laughs> the next morning, he sees Peter and those guys fishing and 
He does this major miracle about making the nets almost burst. You know, they couldn't catch fish. And he, and then check this down, check this out. So he's done another miracle. Look at verse uh, 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold a man who was, uh, I've never read this like this until today because I've ministered in leper, leper colonies. And if you ever want to go with me to India and do that, we get the chance to do it. A man who was full of leprosy. Brother David, you've been there with me. You've seen lepers, haven't you? It's a terrible, loathsome disease. A man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and he implored him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He put out his hand and he touched him. That's... You just read right through that. You don't think about Nobody touches lepers. Look at me. Nobody touches lepers. Except Jesus. Because see, when you touched a leper in the Old Testament times, that made you ceremonially what? Unclean. A lot of you know your Bibles. It made you where you couldn't go into. But when Jesus touches lepers, the leper doesn't make him unclean. The Lord makes the leper clean. He touches the sky. And he says, I'm willing. Be cleansed. Immediately, the leprosy left him. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. And said, go and show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing and as as a testimony to them, just as Moses has commanded. However, <laughs> the report went around concerning him all the more. And great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Now, so you got, he heals this leper and great crowds are gathering and great multitudes are wanting to hear and wanting to be healed so he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. The disciples do it. In another account of this, they come to him and say, Master, everybody's searching for you. Where are you going? He, he goes alone and prays. In the face of all this busy, hectic schedule with multitudes of people demanding his face, his time, his health, his attention, Jesus' life really does reflect a calm sense of balance. What is it about his life that made it so stress-resistant? Let me give you some statements and some principles today, drawing from several different passages that are going to help you if you'll employ them in your own life to handle stress. And boys, I studied it, how I need to get back to these. What was Jesus' strategy for handling stress? Number one, it's the principle of identification. You have an outline in your bulletin. You should be able to write it down. The principle of identification. Now, I've just tried to choose some of the better words I could here. But listen, you have to know who you are. If you're going to be stress-free, I need to rest. I need to know. I need to rest in who I am. Be confident about who I am. That is the first stress resistor. And unless you settle that issue right up front, you're going to be an easy target for stress. Now, in Jesus' case, no doubt, no doubt at all about him being certain about his identity. 
He knew exactly and precisely who he was. In fact, 18 times in Scripture, Jesus defines himself. He says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the light of the world. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the door. I am the vine. I am the one who brings life. And on and on and on. And no doubt in Jesus' mind, you never hear him kind of saying, I'm trying to figure out what God's plan is. I'm trying to balance the demands of work and life and, and being a, a son to, to mom and being a big brother to my little brothers. I'm trying to... No, no, no. Never. In fact, on your outline, I put most of these verses down. In John 8, verse 18, Jesus says this. He's so confident in who he is. He says, I am one who bears witness of myself. You know what that means? Everybody was questioning Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man who speaks with authority? Who is this man who opens the eyes of the blind? Who is this man? Oh, he's a prophet. Oh, he's John the Baptist. Oh, he's this, he's that, and he's Elijah of the Old Testament. Jesus said, I am one who bears witness of myself. And that simply means I don't depend on other people's opinions of me to validate myself. Did other people try to define Jesus? Oh, yeah. But he never let others define who he was. Listen, if, if you don't know who you are, and I mean who you really are, if you don't settle this issue of identity, what you're able to do and what you're not able to do, what talents you have and which talents you don't have, other people, if you don't know who you are, other people will determine it for you. And they will put you in a box and they will mold you and they will squeeze you and they will try to make you conform to the image that they need you to be. What you're going to find yourself is, you're going to find yourself really not being who you are and who God designed you to be, but you're going to design, you're going to find what you're trying to be, what your parents want you to be, what your mom said you ought to be, what your friends or your boss think you ought to be. And that is going to cause enormous stress because you can't be everything to everybody. When you're trying to be something that you're not, you ever tried to do that? You ever tried to do, if I had a math problem, man, I would call this guy right here. How many of you know who I'm talking about? What's his name? Jim Berry. Jim Berry. Boy, I tell you, I could, he could do a math problem that I can't even think of. I'm telling you, he does it just in his mind. But now listen, if I needed a plumber, I'm not calling Jim Berry. <laughs> My toilet stock stuck up. But listen now, he can figure that stuff out. He's an engineer. Brilliant. But he's not a plumber. Somebody said, no, like you did plumbing for them, didn't they? <laughs> it's only four things, hot water on the left, cold water on the right, it won't run uphill, uh, and some other stuff. But anyway, we'll stop right there. But listen, just trying to figure out who you are in life and realize that you can be happy and content with that and you can serve in your area and be who you are because when you try to be something you're not, it causes incredible stress. Can you imagine me trying to sing like Alicia? <laughs> You've heard me, and it puts stress in your life. <laughs> trying to be something you're not. It doesn't work. So the first step is get comfortable with who... Now listen to me. Look right at me. Get comfortable with who you really are. Because it's okay to be who you really are. It's okay. Because who made you that way? God. God. 
And God's got a plan for you. It's okay that you may be going through a period of sickness right now and you can't do everything. You're getting better. Maybe God has things for you to do right now. It's okay. Just be who you are. Value that. Accept that. Love it. And don't worry about, now hear me, don't worry about who you're not. Because, boy, that'll bring stress into your life. Just be who you are. Second principle, you, Jesus was confident in that. No doubt about it. On a mission. Knew who he was. Second principle, there's a principle of dedication. Dedication. Which is this. I must not only know who I am, but I have to know in life who I am trying to please. Mm. The second cause of stress in your life is when you try to please everybody. How's that working for you? You can't do it. It's impossible. The moment you get one group pleased, the other group gets mad at you. You ever tried this to make everybody happy? You get group A happy, group B is upset. You get crowd B happy and crowd A gets upset. You're a hero to one and a zero to the other. You can't please everybody. Do you know even God can't please everybody? He really can't. Not sinful humanity. Two people are praying. One says, God, please help it to rain. Another one's playing, God, please don't let it rain. Who's he going to make happy? If he's going to make one happy, the other one's going to be sad. One's praying, Lord, please help the Panthers win. Another one's playing, praying for the Steelers. Well, probably a bad one. We know whose prayer he answered in that one. <laughs> Next prayer request. The Steelers fan. Of course that's who he answers every time. But it, election day. Lord, help this one to win. Help that one to win. Nah, you know what? God can't make everybody happy. And who is he going to answer? Even God can't keep everybody happy. Not all of sinful humanity. Now look at me. When I wrote this down, I really thought about, I mean this. Wouldn't it be totally, utterly foolish for you to try to do something that God can't even do? One of the myths that's out there is, well, I have to be liked by everybody in order to be happy. It's just not true. You don't have to be liked by everybody to be happy. You know who you're living to please, and you settle that. And with Jesus, that was a, a settled issue. He said in John 5, 30, I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father. I'm going to live for an audience of one, and I'm going to focus on pleasing the Father. And that's a great goal to have, because listen, if you please God and you do what God wants, it doesn't matter what anybody else wants. And, and second place, if you, if you please God and you have him to please, it simplifies your life so much because you only have to focus on pleasing one person. One of the reasons Jesus was never distressed out was he never let the fear of rejection or the fear of failure or the need for approval to motivate and dominate or manipulate his life and change his plans. He knew who he was and he knew who he was trying to please. You don't have to be loved by everybody. In order to be happy. If you think that, you're going to become a people pleaser. You try to be a people pleaser and you're going to wind up miserable. Now I'm just, I love you so I'm telling you that. Second, third principle. Well, let me just apply that for a second. Whose approval are you depending on for your happiness? 
Whose approval are you dependent on? Think about it now. Listen to me. You don't need it. And the truth is, you may never get it. Some of us are still trying to please an unpleasable parent who never approved of you when you were a kid, and they're never going to give you that approval now. They may already be dead, and you're still trying to live up to an image that you thought that they thought you ought to be. So you need to know who you are. This is why I tell you to preach the gospel to yourself all the time. I was lost, now I'm found. God has redeemed me, and I am saved, and I'm his child, and I'm living for him. And remember now, you know who you are by knowing whose you are, right? I'm a child of God. I'm deeply loved, fully forgiven, fully acceptable to the Father by Jesus Christ. I'm living only to please my Heavenly Father. Now, third, the principle of prioritization. This is a huge one. This is a huge one. It's huge for me. So many of us are people pleasers that we let other people change our, our, uh, our, our priorities. Go to number three, slide number three. I hope I changed that one. Prioritization. Did I not change it? Oh, I double-checked those. I can't believe it. All right, write it down anyway. Tim's wrong. <laughs> That's why I see he's back there fooling with that Clemson stuff. Messed up my PowerPoint. <laughs> Third is the principle of prioritization, which means this, I know what I want to accomplish. I'm very clear about that. Because you don't have time for everything. Young people, and figure out early in your life what you want to be and set a goal towards it and go towards it and don't stop. Know what you want to accomplish. Prioritization. You don't have time for everything. Would you agree with that? You don't have time to do everything, do you? So you've got to know what you want to accomplish. Know this. You will be guided in your life either by your priorities or by pressures. Only two options, priorities or pressures. If you don't set your priorities, you will be guided by pressures. Priorities are what you have prayed about and therefore you believe God wants you to do. That's your priorities. Pressures are what everybody else wants you to do in this life. Most people, most other people, have a wonderful agenda for your life. Did you know that? I'm very serious. But you need to set some priorities for your life or you'll be guided by the pressure. You see, the direction of your life is really your choice. And by setting priorities, you avoid the tyranny of the urgent. Got to get this. Got to get that. That's the way some people live. Oh, oh, here's another. Oh, this person just called and that person just called. And uh, people get mad at me sometimes. Well, I can't get you. You don't call me back. It's because I'm working on stuff that I've already prioritized. Now, if it's really bad, I'll call you, I'll come visit you, I'll help, whatever. But, but I don't live a lazy, disorganized life. And I'm not bragging. I try to prioritize, and I have to fight this all the time. Because one of my gifts is the gifts of helps, and, and I, love to, I have the gift of mercy, and I love to help everybody. So if I don't watch it, right, Wanda? I get drug away with all kind of other stuff, don't I? When Eisenhower was president, he said he had two desks, uh, two trays on his desk. One said urgent, another one said important. 
And he said, I would always ignore the urgent for about two days. And then about half of them, he said, I could just toss in a trash can because they really were urgent, but they weren't important. Now, did Jesus prioritize? Yes, he absolutely did. He absolutely did. John 8, 14, he says this. He says, I know where I came from. It's on your outline. And I know where I'm going. Jesus established very clear-cut goals for his life and ministry. I know exactly where I came from. I know exactly where I'm going. Now, do you? Do you have written down clear-cut goals for your life? Less than 5% of people have written down goals for their life, clear-cut goals. The people that do are also the most successful people. Do you establish clear-cut goals for your life? By setting priorities, Jesus knew exactly what he wanted to accomplish. You ever get to the end of a day and do this? Happens to me. Now, I have to fight these all the time. Fight them tooth and nail. You get to the end of a day and say, did I get anything accomplished? You ever have those days? <laughs> it's like every day for some of us, but yeah. Uh, did I accomplish anything or was I just spinning my wheels? This is because we're not living a prioritized life. I shall never forget this. I'll probably tell it ten times in my old age while I'm here. We had a youth pastor one time. His name was Jeff, and we had this guy come in to be a financial consultant at church growth. Joe Miller was his name. Now, Mr. Miller was the most organized of the organized. I mean, he probably made daytimers for Stephen Covey. I mean, he is that principled and he is structured and he has everything he comes in it's raining we're in this little trailer that we had for an office back then mr miller's coming in he looks over there and sitting at the desk is the youth pastor and the youth pastor just the whole desk looks like a bomb went off you know just stuff everywhere stuff everywhere i don't know if you've ever watched andy griffith but barney that one time when he gets real confused and he does his hair like that you know he says you know and it's just everywhere he looks at Mr. Miller, who walks in with his prim hat on and puts his hat down and umbrella, and he says, Mr. Miller, have you ever had so much to do that you just don't know where to start? Mr. Miller put the rest of his stuff down. He said, looked at him. He said, son, what you need is a plan. I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be good. I just sit back. <laughs> I've been telling him that for a year. He said, Get you a piece of paper. Now, if you listen to this illustration, you'll get one of the secrets to being effective. I'm telling you, this is great. I learned this. It changed my life. He said, get you a blank piece of paper and a pencil. All right? Oh, Jeff scrambled around, looked for two minutes and found one. And he got a blank piece of paper and he wrote that. He said, just write down something you got to do. He said, well, I don't know. That's what I mean. I don't know where to start. I said, one thing, I don't care if it's most important or least important. Just write it down. What's something else you got to do? Well, I got to do this. What's something else? Just, and boy, he ran him out of gas. I mean, he, anything else you got to do, write it down. He said, uh, no, that's it. That's it. That's all. I mean, he had him a list this long. He said, which one of those things are the most important one? He picked one of them, you know, said, well, this one right here. Joe Miller said, that's where you start. Now, he said, make another list, put that pit, that, that in number one. What's the next most important thing? Put it in number two. What's the next? Put it in number three. What's the next? Put it in number four. And when he finished, he had a list. He said, you start right at the top, and if you only get four of the 15 things done, you got the four, four most important things done. That guy was a genius. But it's so simple. 
What did he do? What did he do? He just took all this big picture. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. I got to do this. And he just gave, had him write them all down. Then he had him prioritize the list. See, Jesus led an incredibly intentional life. You notice in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus said, we read through it, I, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. Not I want to, not they're hollering for me, I must. Because what? Why did he say I must do this? Because it was for that purpose that God sent me. Do you see the intentionality? Do you see the prioritization? They were saying, Master, don't leave. Stay here, please. We, we've got sick. We've got, we need you. We need your teaching. He said, no, i got to go. That's why I came. I'm going to the next town. Sometimes you ought to do a Bible study and look up the word must and how many times Jesus said it and see what it says about it. I must work while it is day. I must. He had his purposes and intentions clear. In fact, you can do another stat study on I came to do. You know, statements like Jesus saying this, I came to give life, I came to seek and save the lost, I came to bring not peace but a sword, I came. He not only knew who he was, and he not only knew who he was trying to please, but he knew exactly what he was trying to accomplish. Now let me move on quickly, all right? Principle number four, the principle of concentration or focus. You see this so beautifully in the life of Christ. Focus on what is important. So you know who you are, you know what you're, who you're trying to please, you know what you're trying to accomplish, and then you concentrate on the things that are most important. Not urgent, but most important. You don't get distracted by the trivial. And here's what I've learned in my life, is if Satan can't get me to go out and do something wrong, he'll just wear me out with a lot of good things. Not necessarily bad, just not the best. It'll just keep me overcommitted to a bunch of good things and keep me from the best things. But Jesus was a master at concentration. I put it on your outline, Luke chapter 9, verse 51. It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. That means to be crucified and risen from the dead. This is the whole point of the whole reason he's been here. What does it say? He steadfastly set his face. You need to... Write that down, underline it. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. I've heard pastors comment on this forever. His focus was on the cross. He was going to the cross. He steadfastly set his face. That means what? He didn't, he didn't look, he wasn't distracted. No, no, no. He steadfastly set his face. Unbelievable concentration. I look out among you every week and I tell you I see incredible spiritual potential in your life. God sees it. God wants to use it. And God thinks that God could do through you. You don't even see. But God sees it. And I see it in you. You have great gifts, great talents, great abilities. The problem is a lot of us have never even yet settled this issue right here. What is most important in my life? And so you just flitter around. you Rid of your time away on things that don't matter and things that aren't going to last for eternity. Get to the end of your life and you end up, you know, end of your day. I never had time for quiet time. Never, never had time for Sunday school. I didn't study my Bible. One day you're going to stand in front of heaven, in front of God, and he's going to say, why didn't you take time to do the things that would have helped you grown? Things that I gave you opportunities. Why well, didn't I have time, Lord? He's going to say, no way, you had time. 
you're going to realize you had time. You just didn't prioritize your time. You didn't focus. Some of us are caught up in the Martha syndrome. You know your Bible, Mary and Martha, right? You know what that means, the Martha syndrome? You're all, syndrome, you're always overscheduled. And Jesus, you know what Jesus said to Martha? It's on your outline. You remember the story. Jesus is visiting. Martha's encumbered with a whole lot of stuff. And Mary's worshiping her. She gets mad. Lord, tell her to get over here and help me. There's a lot to be done. She's sitting there at your feet. You know what the Lord said to Martha? You are worried and bothered by a whole lot of things. Now, you need to underline this. But one thing is necessary and Mary has chosen that good part and that shall not be taken away from her now does that describe a bunch of us worried and bothered about a whole lot of things listen look right at your pastor I love you there are just a few things that are necessary just a couple of things really only one Concentrate on your relationship to me, the Lord is saying. All those other things will come into focus. Fifth, delegation. You figure out where you're going, then you can begin to let other people help you. Some of us, it's so hard to delegate, isn't it? Because we did one time, <laughs> and somebody did what? They messed it up, or they didn't do it. You see, we get ourselves under all kinds of stress. Now, that's what we're talking about, right? You know why? Because we think we have to do it all ourselves. May I suggest that you resign today as general manager of the universe? <laughs> we think we're Atlas, you know, holding the whole world on our shoulders. Of course, here's what always blows me away. When you get sick and all of a sudden you can't hold it together, you realize the world goes on anyway. Somebody said, if you really want to see your importance, you take a bucket of water, stick your hand in that bucket of water, and then take it out real quick and see how much of a hole you leave when it's missing. I heard a great statement recently. I don't mean to demean people, but here's the truth. Graveyards are full of indispensable people. Delegation means you let other people do it. Finish this sentence for me. If you want it done right, <laughs> you are experts, I tell you. You know what that is? That is the motto of a perfectionist who is headed for burnout. Think of the egotism behind that statement, man. The only body who does anything right in the whole wide world is me. And if anything's going to be done right, I have to do it. Now, if anybody ever had a right to say that, Jesus did. Huh? Right? Perfect. Could have done it better himself. But even Jesus didn't do it all by himself. This verse blows me away. Look at Mark chapter 3, verse 14 on your outline. Then Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him. They were, that is, he was going to teach them. But, and that he might what? Send them out to preach. Do you think Jesus could have done a better job of preaching than the disciples? Hmm? Sure he could have. 
No doubt about it. Then why did he send others? He was modeling this principle. Those of you who are bosses, managers, don't make all the mistakes yourself. Let some of your employees make a few of them. I'm serious as a heart attack now. I'm serious. Let some of your employees make them. It's great to learn from other people's mistakes, isn't it? <clears throat> you got to learn to let other people help us. You do that, your stress level goes down. You got to trust them. You got to let them make mistakes. But it'd be all right. Sixth one, and I'm going to go through these quick. The principle of meditation. It's the only word I could think that would alliterate. I mean prayer. Meditation's not a bad word if you just use it according to Scripture. Make a habit of prayer. Prayer is a fantastic stress reliever. You ever notice that? A wonderful way to unload your burdens. You study the life of Jesus, you find out that no matter how busy he got... He always took time for prayer. In fact, the busier his schedule got, the more time he would take to prayer. And the same thing you need to do. Amen. Did you hear that? The busier you get, you need more time set aside to pray and read the Bible. To get input. Input. So you're not just having all this output in your life. I, we read it. Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. However, the report went around concerning him, the leper, and all the more. And the great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now that, to me, is almost a contradictory statement at first. More people were coming to him, more demands, more healings, and he leaves and prays. So he leaves and prays. I'm just going, what? So listen, if Jesus felt the need to get alone and pray, don't you think you're going to have to? You need time alone with God. And let me give you a little tip. You want to start your day off right in the morning when you wake up, start the day off with God's Word, even two or three minutes. Don't go saying, I'm going to spend an hour in the Word of God. You won't do it a week. Just a, ch a chapter, maybe a, maybe a paragraph or two, but something. And uh, instead of starting off with, Bad morning America, start off with good morning Jesus, you know. I mean, here's what happens. Here's your normal day in mind. Normally we wake up in the morning. The first thing, you know what we wake up to? An alarm clock. It's not a, oh, how are you, good morning clock. It's an alarm clock. You wake up in a state of alarm, and so that really starts your day off right. This alarm going off. And then you get up and turn on the TV while you're getting ready and you hear about crime and the economy and rape and murder and gas prices going up and then you get in the car and you're stressed out driving to work and you're going to work you turn on talk radio and listen to more complaining and bad news you get to work I don't understand why I'm always so stressed out <laughs> little alternative take about five minutes ten minutes maybe get up in the morning Open God's Word, sit down. I, I listen to God's Word just on my Bible when I do it. Sit down, sit outside in your backyard or just look out a window, sit at a table. Be quiet, listen, look, meditate. See if it doesn't make a difference in your stress level. Final principle and we're gone, relaxation. Relaxation. Did you know Jesus relaxed? He did, even with all his priorities. Take time to enjoy life. You must do it. You've got to stop and smell the roses now. 
this story blew me away. Never been a big uh, Dick Vermeil fan and Eagles, but but you know what? When Dick Vermeil was the coach of the Eagles football team a number of years ago, years and years ago, NFL went on strike one year. Season was cut short, and all of a sudden, no games to be played. He had absolutely nothing to do. And Dick Vermeil said, I was a workaholic. I worked every football season. I lived in my office. I never went home. He would sleep in his office for the entire season because he was so focused on football and described himself as a workaholic. And when the strike happened, there's no football. One day, him and his wife, he said, I went out with my wife for a ride. We were driving down the street, and it was in the autumn. He said, I looked out, and I said, what's wrong with all these trees? He's serious. You ought to hear him tell. He said, I said, what's wrong with all these trees? His wife literally had to explain to him that the trees, because he was from California, the trees turned yellow and gold in the fall in Philadelphia. He was way out of balance. Into that season, he resigned because he was burned out, crying and weeping, said, I'm burned out. And then after he took some time off to relax, he came back, but he didn't go back to Philly. He went back to coach the L.A. Rams, and guess what he accomplished? He won the Super Bowl. Now, those of you who are workaholics, would you just listen to this? Rest and relaxation are not wasted time. Jesus habitually took time off. Even though there were still people to be healed, there were still people who were demon-possessed, there were still people that needed to be saved, there were still people that needed deliverance, he still took time off. Now, is your job more important than Jesus' job? Notice Mark 6, 31 on your outline. He said to them, he's talking to his disciples. I have it all memorized in the King James, but he, he said to his disciples, Come ye apart. And rest a while. Oh, Dr. Vance Havner used to say, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. <laughs> when man created him, he did, when God created man, he didn't put him in a building, he didn't put him in an office, he put him in a what? A garden. Get outside, feel the sun, listen. Just how long has it been since you sat outside, didn't do anything, and just listened? Now, that's hard to do in Charlotte. All I hear is dogs barking, and I got a bunch of mob of crows around my house that I'm working on. It's hard in, a ci- hard in a city, but anyway. Go out in the country and just sit and listen. You'll hear leaves crackling, the wind rustling. I love to listen to rain coming through the woods. Jesus said to them, come aside yourselves and to a deserted place and rest a while. Notice what it says, for they were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. You ever been there? That's serious. That's serious. So he tells, fellas, you need a break. Come on out. And he takes them out to the desert. That's what he does in that passage where there's palms and there's some springs. And by the way, that's a biblical basis for a Palm Springs vacation. Amen? There's palms and springs Palm Springs. You got it right there in Mark 6. You could plan it. (laughs) And they rest. But he said, you you come apart. Come apart. Now, here's what I've discovered. If I don't schedule 
time off and guard it like a rabid pit bull. It'll get taken away from me. So what you got to do is get some rest. Sometimes to be effective, you need rest. You need rest. Intentional steps to counteract stress if you're going to survive. Now the single greatest source of stress in our life is this, is when we refuse to allow Jesus Christ to have a part in every detail of our life. And we need to submit our lives to him. If we don't, it becomes a source of stress. And you were never meant to live apart from Christ. You were meant to live in the fellowship and connection and have every area of your life under his dominion. And if you're stressed out, there's an incredible, fantastic promise in the Bible. It's amazing. If you're stressed out, you have an offer you can't refuse. Here it is, incredible office, offer that Jesus made 2,000 years ago. It still stands today when you're stressed out. It's this. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. If you're overburdened, please get some rest this week. Please go through these principles during the week and say, Lord, how can I prioritize better? How, how, can I, how can I do this? Here's how. Set your mind to it. It'll make an amazing difference. Amen? Amen? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Just for a moment, I want to invite you to respond to the message. How do you need to respond? Some of you are so worn out, you are just sitting here saying, Wow. This message was a word from God directly to me. God has spoken to me. And so either right where you are, or perhaps as our custom is, you may just want to get up in a moment and come down to the front and say, Thank you, Lord. Just kneel at the front and say, Thank you, Lord, for speaking to me. Lord, help me to prioritize. Lord, help me. Help me to stay with some of these things. Lord, I'm so tired, I need some relaxation. Lord, help me to get over my parents' expectations and trying to please everyone. He's a life-changing God. He wants to do that for you. If you'll only let him. Others of you here may not know the Lord and you may need Christ a relationship with him to be saved, I invite you to come down and take one of our pastor's hands and say, I need to be saved. And what we'll do, we'll pray with you. You can leave here today saved, forgiven. You talk about a stress reliever. But whatever your decision is, would you say, oh Lord, speak to me as we sing in Jesus' name, amen. So stand with me just for a moment. And let's just respond as the Lord leads to the message.